All right, well, we're going to continue our study tonight uh, on the subject of redemption accomplished and applied. Uh, redemption accomplished and applied. And I know that with the conference last week and some other things, we have, uh, it's been a minute since we've looked at this subject, so a little bit of review might be necessary, but uh, just remind you that we are, last time we talked about the necessity of the atonement. The necessity of the atonement. And uh, we're using the outlines of John's Murray, John Murray's book by that title, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, as the outline of our course. And uh, we're not making any claims to do any sort of exhaustive treatment of the book. Uh, John Murray was one of the preeminent theologians of the 1900s, uh, and his book really is a masterpiece on the doctrine of salvation. Uh, but we're simply just trying to give a, an overview. Um, the, the doctrine of the atonement, and specifically this chapter on the necessity of the atonement, is one of the most technical chapters in the book. So once we get through this chapter tonight, uh, it'll be smoother sailing from here on out. Uh, but just by way of review, um, we, we said last time that when it, when it comes to the necessity of the atonement, there were two primary views. Two primary views. The first was the view of hypothetical necessity. Hypothetical necessity. Does anyone want to take a crack at what hypothetical necessity means when we talk about the hypothetical necessity of the atonement? Okay, no, but uh, that, that's, a, that's a wrong view of the atonement, uh, but no. <laughs> Was it the one where something was necessary, but it could have been something else? That, that's pretty close. So, uh, hypothetical necessity of the atonement, it says that uh, God could have saved sinners without the atonement, but he chose the atonement. He chose the atonement to, uh, to save sinners because that was the best view after he considered all the other views. And when we talk about the atonement, of course, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the death of Christ in the place of sinners. That's the atonement. That is the uh, thing, uh, the act that, that God did in order to reconcile sinners to himself. And there's a view of hypothetical necessity that says that the death of Christ, the atonement, wasn't necessary. There was nothing inherent in the nature of God or inherent in the nature of redemption that made the atonement necessary. God could have saved sinners another way, but he chose the atonement because he considered that to be the way that brings him the most glory. Well, uh, there's a number of problems with that. Number one is that it makes, it makes God's thoughts too much like man's thoughts. Uh, it, it don't have this view of God... That God, God is the one that determines the end from the beginning. That's what Isaiah tells us. Don't have this view of God that God is sitting up in heaven and he's weighing the options and he's considering. And uh, God does not have to use critical thinking to reach the best conclusion like you and I do. We, we are presented with a number of options. Say so we have a, a challenge, we have a problem that we need to solve. And what we do is we start weighing the options and we start considering, okay, what course of action should I take to accomplish this goal? God is not like that. He's omniscient. 
He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. God does not think critically. God thinks decreatively, meaning that his thoughts are not like our thoughts. His ways are not like our ways. He doesn't have to figure anything out. Therefore, he didn't choose the atonement. He didn't decree the atonement because after a process of thought, he realized it was the best way. No, so we believe in the consequent... Absolute necessity of the atonement. And if you can define hypothetical necessity, you should be able to define consequent absolute necessity. So what is consequent absolute necessity? It's absolutely necessary. There wasn't another option. Right. That inherent in the nature of redemption... And in the character of God, the only way that God could have saved sinners was through the atonement in the exact way that the atonement happened. But why do we say consequent absolute necessity? Doesn't it seem as if as if those are kind of contradicting one another? How can something be absolutely necessary but also be consequently necessary? In what, in what sense is the atonement consequently necessary. In other words, what is the consequence that makes the atonement necessary? From what does the atonement flow out of? Or from what does redemption flow out of? Yes, the fall. Yes, sin. Uh, but but uh, even though man has fallen, God is not under any sort of obligation to save sinners. What was it that compelled him to save sinners? Think about the most famous verse in the Bible. His love. It was the love of God that moved him to save sinners. God was not obligated to save anyone. When Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, God would have been totally just had he wiped them off the face of the earth and said, that's it, no more humanity. But God didn't do that. He came to Adam and Eve in grace and in mercy, and he saved them from the fall. And the reason why he did that, John 3.16 tells us, because he so loved the world. So the atonement is consequently necessary because of the love of God. So when you think of consequent, think love of God. But in what sense is the atonement absolutely necessary? Well, because of God's love, because God, before the foundation of the world, said, I will save sinners, once he issued that decree, there was no other way that he could accomplish that decree apart from the atonement. So the absolute necessity of the atonement stems from the character of God and the nature of redemption. Character of God and the nature of redemption. Because what is redemption? When we talk about redemption, when we talk about redemption, we're using legal language. We're using legal language. We're using the kind of language that would be used to describe the purchasing of a slave off of the slave market, to buy his freedom. And that's what you and I were. We were slaves to sin. We were in bondage. We were, we were condemned under the curse of the law. We were, uh, we were destined for eternal condemnation and judgment. And there was a price hanging over our head. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And in order for God to redeem, 
the character of God, the character of God insists that he cannot sacrifice his justice. Redemption cannot come at the expense of the justice of God. But the nature of redemption requires that the price of salvation be paid. Therefore, we believe the atonement is consequently absolutely necessary. Consequent absolute necessity. And we went through this last time and <clears throat> kind of outlined that in greater detail. But what I want to do tonight, there's going to be a lot of turning, but I want to show you. Remember I said I've got eight different proofs. There probably could be more, but I've got eight different proofs and they're all coming straight from the pen of John Murray and his book. Uh, eight scriptural proofs for the consequent absolute necessity of the atonement. And I'll, I'll write them as we, as we look at them. But the first place I want you to turn is our familiar friend. Turn back to John chapter 3. And the first proof is John 3, verses 14 through 18. All of these scriptural proofs will give us a different perspective on the consequent absolute necessity of the atonement. And my goal tonight is for you to leave here knowing that there is absolutely no other way that God could have possibly saved sinners apart from the atonement of Christ, apart from the death of Christ on the cross. That wasn't just the best option. It was the only option. Uh, and the Bible bears that out. We see that all through the New Testament. So John 3, and beginning in verse 14, the Bible says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so, notice the next word, must the Son of Man be lifted up. So it's not that uh, uh, he might be lifted up. He may be lifted up. Uh, there, there might be something else that would, would come and would accomplish salvation. No, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, must be lifted up. Verse 15, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now notice what the Bible says in verses 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world or but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18 is really the crux here. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What these verses are teaching us is that the only alternative to the giving of the Son as the sacrificial substitute for sinners is the eternal condemnation of the whole world. That's the only alternative. Had God not sent Jesus into the world to live a sinless life, to die on the cross, to be buried, and to be raised again, and to ascend back to the right hand of the Father. Had God not done that, the whole world would have been condemned in their sins. And because he says here that those who don't believe on him are condemned already. Are condemned already. Uh, we're, not, we're not of the Pelagian school of thought that teaches that, well, man is born innocent, and... You know, uh, throughout his, his infancy and in, into his childhood, he's neither righteous nor guilty until there comes a point in his life when he either chooses good or he chooses evil. And if he hears the gospel and believes, he's good. But if he hears the gospel and rejects it, he's bad. No, the Bible declares 
that you're condemned already. Why do we take the gospel into the world? Do you realize, because a lot of people, they like to throw up the argument of, well, what about the, the, the tribe in the jungle somewhere that's never heard the gospel? Okay, if you can be saved through ignorance, follow my, my train of thought here, if you can be saved through ignorance, the worst thing we could do is go to you and preach the gospel. If you could be saved simply because, well, I, I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know the gospel. Oh, well, because you didn't know, I guess I'll forgive you of your sins and let you in. Right? If that's the way salvation worked, the worst thing we could do is go and preach Christ. Because once we preach Christ and they reject Him, then, then they're guilty of rejecting the gospel. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that they're condemned already. And we're not going to get off into this rabbit trail, but that's because, as Paul says in Romans 1, the light of nature reveals that there is a God. And even the remote tribe in the jungle somewhere that's never heard the name Jesus, that's never heard the message of the cross, they have seen nature, they have a God-given conscience, they have the law written on their heart, and they feel guilt. They know there is a God, right? They know there is a God. Uh, and, and so uh, the consequent absolute necessity of the atonement says that they're condemned already, and the only way of salvation for them, the only way, is that we go and preach Christ, and they believe upon the gospel of the Son of God. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. There's several texts in Hebrews that speak to the consequent absolute necessity of the atonement. Hebrews chapter 2, and I want you to look at verses 10 and verses 17. Look at verses 10 and 17. The whole message of the book of Hebrews is that Christ is better. Christ is better than the uh, Mosaic system. Christ is better than the Levitical priesthood. Christ is better than the, the offering of bulls and goats upon the altar. He's better than the tabernacle. He's better than the temple. Christ is better. That's the whole message of the book of Hebrews. And notice what it says about our Lord in verse 10 of chapter 2. It says, For it was fitting... For him, then focus in on that word there. Fitting, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. When the Bible says it was fitting for him, what it's, it's saying is that it was congruent with the nature of redemption that the Son of God might become the captain of their salvation to those who are redeemed, and that He may be made perfect through His sufferings. When you see that word perfect in the Bible, you also need to understand that one of the definitions of the word perfect is complete. In other words, the sufferings of Christ were necessary for the completion or the fulfillment of His purpose in the role of the Redeemer or in the work of salvation. He had to suffer. He, he had to become the captain of their salvation. It was fitting. It was according to the divine design of God. In other words, any other means of redemption would not have been fitting. Right? So the atonement was not hypothetically necessary. 
because Christ had to suffer. He had to suffer. Furthermore, it was necessary that Christ become like his brethren. Notice verse 17. It says, therefore, in all things he had, and the word therefore had is the Greek word ophilo, which means to be obligated. So you could say he was obligated to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. The nature of redemption obligated Christ to become like his brethren because Christ had to be truly God and truly man in order to redeem. Isn't that a wonderful thought that, number one, we are his brethren. He is our elder brother. And God is forming a family of grace in which all the siblings resemble their eldest brother, Jesus Christ. But it is, isn't it a wonderful thought that God sent Jesus into the world and he condescended and became man in order to relate to us and in order to be the Savior. He could not have been the Savior had he not been fully man. Right? Because we needed a man to die in our place. But he could not have been the Savior if he were not truly God. Because a mere man who is a sinner just like you, could not save you. He can't even save himself. So Jesus Christ can only be the Savior because he's the God-man, truly God and truly man. So we see Hebrews 2, verses 10 and verse 17. They speak of the work of Christ and the sufferings of Christ and the condescension of Christ as all things necessary for redemption. Uh, then turn over just a few chapters to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And we'll look at verses 22 through 28. Hebrews 9, verses 22 through 28. A lot is found here in Hebrews 9. There's actually several proofs from this one text. Hebrews 9. Let me just read these verses to you, and then we'll, we'll go through them. The Bible says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. The argument here for the consequent absolute necessity of the atonement, the argument here is that the efficacy or the power of Christ's work as Redeemer is contingent upon the unique constitution of his person. In other words, Christ's ability to redeem 
and his ability to accomplish the atonement is contingent upon who he is. Who he is in the ordination of redemption, who he is in the revelation of, of God's plan as the fulfillment of the Old Testament types and shadows, who he is as the God-man. Okay? Uh, look at verse 22. The Bible lays out a, a very important principle, and that is this. The nature of redemption requires a removal of sin, and the removal of sin requires the shedding of blood. You cannot be saved if you are still in your sins. God will not allow a single sin into his kingdom. He will not allow a single sin into heaven. He will not accept you if you are still bearing your sins. Uh, so your sins must be removed in order for you to be saved. In order for God to redeem, there must be a removal of sin. Well, there's a law, a principle that's found all throughout the Bible that the only way sin can be removed is with the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood is required for sin to be removed. And the value of the blood must be fitting with the value of the thing purified. Right? We see that. He says, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Here's the, the application of that. Verse 23. Therefore... It was necessary, we see that key word, necessary, that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. When it talks about the with these, it's talking about the blood of bulls and goats. The copies of the things heavenly are referring to what? The tabernacle. So look up in verse 19 of Hebrews 9. It says, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Now the blood of bulls and goats were what? They were a copy of the heavenly. They were a shadow of the things to come. Well, the Old Testament tabernacle and temple was also a copy. So the the, the uh, copy sacrifice purifies the copy temple, right? The value of the blood purifies the thing uh, being purified. The value of the blood must be fitting with the value of the thing being purified. But John Murray says uh, of, of, of this verse, verse 23, he says, In other words, there is stated to be a necessity that can be met by nothing less than the blood of Jesus because... The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, because it was the blood of bulls and goats that purified the temple in the Old Testament, the true temple, which is what? The people of God in the new covenant. Therefore, it's necessary that these things be purified with better sacrifices. Well, who is the better sacrifice? Who has the better blood? It's Jesus Christ. So he says the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. They purified the tabernacle, they purified the temple, they covered sin in the Old Testament dispensation, but they could not take it away. They could not take it away. Uh, verse 24 and 25, he goes on, he says, For Christ, now he's, what he's doing, the writer here, he's highlighting the difference between the Old Testament sacrificial system and the work of Christ in the New Testament. He's highlighting the difference, and he's showing how Jesus is better. And he says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. Right? The, the church is not made with hands. 
the church is made by the Spirit of God as he saves sinners. But the tabernacle was made with hands. He says, he says Christ has not entered it to the holy places made with hands, which are, and we, get, we see this again, copies of the true or patterns of the true, but Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. The priest in the Old Testament, he took the blood of bulls and goats and he went into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and he sprinkled the blood upon the mercy seat and God's wrath was stayed. It wasn't taken away, but it was stayed. And he had to come back every year and he had to sprinkle that blood every year on the Day of Atonement. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus Christ, once and for all, has taken his own blood and he has entered into the true Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, and he sprinkled his blood and he's offered himself as our sacrifice to God. Then he says, verse 25, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to have suffered often since the foundation of the world. Right? If Christ was not better than the Levitical priest, he would have to keep dying over and over again, re-crucifying. That's what they're doing in the Mass, by the way. They're, they're re-sacrificing Christ every time the, they institute the, the Mass. No, he didn't have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Why didn't Jesus have to suffer, sacrifice himself and suffer over and over again? Because the value of his blood as the eternal sacrifice, as the divine Son of God, the value of his blood shed once was efficacious to redeem sinners throughout all the ages. Throughout all the ages. And then we see in verses 27 and 28. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so as Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Because of the constitution of his person as truly God and truly man, the effulgence of the Father's glory who became partaker of flesh and blood, only Christ is able by the once offering of himself to purify the many who eagerly wait for him. So the question is, are you eagerly waiting for him? If you're eagerly waiting for him, then you can rest assured knowing that 2,000 years ago on that cross, he shed his blood for you. He offered it to the Father in heaven. He has taken away God's wrath and he will come again for you apart from sin for your final salvation when he'll glorify you and receive you to be with him forever. Uh, there is no other way, brothers and sisters. There simply is no other way. This is the, the absolute, the consequent absolute necessity of the atonement. No other savior, uh, no other way to remove sin you could not do it by your good works. You could not do it by sacrificing uh, animals. You could not do it uh, through offering the fruit of your labors to God. No, only the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you can take away your sin and thus open the way of redemption so that God could redeem you. But while you're in Hebrews 9, 
Focus in on verse 23 again. Because there's something that was repeated. <clears throat> Verses 23 and 24 repeat this word. And that's that word there, pattern or copy. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heaven should be purified. Well, this is a, an interesting revelation here. And it really was was interesting for me when I began to study it. I never quite thought about it in this way, so maybe you haven't either. But another key observation from this verse is that it calls the Levitical sacrifices copies or patterns of the heavenly reality. So the the Levitical Levitical sacrifices of bulls and goats and other animals upon the Old Testament off, off altar were copies of the heavenly reality. This means that the Levitical sacrifices were patterned after the sacrifice of Christ, not the other way around. That was what I hadn't really thought of in that way. I'd often thought, and, and there's a sense in which there's, there's truth to this, that Christ, His sacrifice, was in fulfillment of the Levitical sacrifices, and it was, but there's also a sense in which the Levitical sacrifices are in fulfillment of Christ's sacrifice. You say, well, how can the Levitical sacrifices be a, be, be a pattern of the heavenly or the real true sacrifice of Christ when Christ had not yet been sacrificed on the cross? Well, because the Bible says he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. When God instituted the Levitical sacrifices in time, he had already issued the eternal decree for Christ's sacrifice upon the cross. Pointing to what? Consequent, absolute necessity of the atonement. Had God not decreed... In other words, what I'm saying to you, when we talk about the decrees of God, we, we, we need to be careful because God does not think the way we do. We have thoughts. God has a thought, right? He does, not, he does not think this and then that and then this. There's no chronological distinction in eternity. But there, there is, however, a logical distinction or a logical ordering of God's decrees. And what I'm saying to you is that God decreed to save his people through the atonement of Christ and then he patterned the entire Old Testament system after that atonement. After that atonement. Uh, and, and really when you see that, that is just beautiful. That is just beautiful. So, in other words, God decreed to send the Son into the world. And then he, he ordained everything else after the pattern of that atonement. And the Old Testament sacrifices were to pattern the atonement. And then the New Testament ordinances of what? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. They point back to that atonement. And then standing in the middle. It's like it's if, if I were to draw this on a chart. It would look something like this. You would have. I'll do it up here in the corner. Here is, here is redemptive history. And then everything outside of that is eternity. You have the Old Testament, which points forward. You have the New Testament, which points backwards. And then standing in the middle of redemptive history is God's ordination of the cross of Christ. What, what am I saying to you? I'm saying to you that all of the external 
ceremonies and ordinances that God has instituted for his people to observe. In the Old Testament, it was the temple system and the the pattern sacrifices. In the New Testament, it's the New Testament church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. All of it is uh, is not a reflection of, but it's patterned after. It's patterned after what Christ has done. Right? It's not that, uh, that Christ came to die in such a way that reflected the Old Testament. It's that the Old Testament was designed by God to reflect the coming work of Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you understand that redemptive history is always progressing forward, you understand that with the sacrifice of Christ, that forever ended the Old Testament sacrificial system. There's never the need to sacrifice animals upon a physical altar ever again because he has died once and for all. So to sum up this whole argument from Hebrews 9, the argument for consequent absolute necessity from Hebrews 9 is this. The effects of sin are absolute, not hypothetical. Right? Sin will surely bring condemnation and death. Therefore, the removal of sin is necessary not hypothetical, for, for salvation. Furthermore, only Christ, because he is the God-man and the great high priest of his people, is qualified to make such a sacrifice that will effectively remove sin. And this sacrifice is called the heavenly, or the true sacrifice, as opposed to the Levitical sacrifices, which are only patterns of the heavenly. Therefore, if the sacrifice of Christ is only hypothetically necessary, then it cannot be equated with the absolute reality of heavenly things as it is in Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 then teaches that the atonement of Christ is absolutely necessary as a consequence of the nature of God, the nature of sin, and the nature of redemption. And we see that exemplified in how God has structured and ordained all of redemptive history, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. A couple more proofs. That was three of them right there from Hebrews 9. A couple more proofs that will be a lot quicker. Turn with me to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verses 21 through 22. Galatians 3, verses 21 through 22. The Bible says, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. Here's the key phrase. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, what does that sound like, could have? Sounds like something that's hypothetical, right? That could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The necessity of the atonement is essential to your justification. Hebrews 9 just taught us that redemption requires the removal of sin, but also required in redemption is a perfect righteousness that is acceptable before God. So we see that only through the atonement can your sins be removed, but now what I'm showing you is that only through the atonement can you receive a righteousness that God will accept. 
John Murray says of verse 21 here in Galatians 3, what Paul is insisting upon is that if justification could have been secured by any other method than that of faith in Christ, by that method it would have been. If salvation could have come through the law, it would have come through the law. If salvation could come through your works, it would come through your works. If salvation could come through anything that you do or offer or provide, then that's how salvation would come. But what Galatians 3 teaches us is that only through the promise of faith in Christ can we receive salvation. Why? Because the only righteousness that God accepts is the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ. That's the problem with evangelism today. Sinners are deceived into thinking that God will accept their righteousness. But Isaiah tells us that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. God doesn't accept my righteousness. Even as a Christian, the good works I do as a Christian don't merit my salvation. The only righteousness that God accepts is the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ. Well, how do you get that righteousness? Well, in order for you to get the righteousness of Christ, he has to offer it up, doesn't he? You don't come and take his righteousness from him. No, it's the gift of God. He offered up his righteousness on the cross of Calvary. And in the death of the Son of God, there was a dual transaction. Your sins were removed and his righteousness was added. Isn't that a glorious truth? That God solved both of our problems in the death of his son. You had, number one, your problem was that you were filthy in your sin. That was your first problem. Your second problem was that you completely lacked and were completely void of a righteousness that God would accept. It's not just that you need to get back to zero, right? It's not just that you need to, you need to atone for the sins that you've committed. It's that you need a positive righteousness. You need a positive righteousness. Even if God were to wipe your slate clean, as it were, you still would not be able to enter heaven because innocence is not the grounds for heaven. Righteousness is. And the only way to have the full, complete righteousness of Christ is to receive it through faith and to be positively holy even as he is holy. Turn to Romans 3. Romans 3 and verses 23 through 26. Romans 3, verses 23 through 26. <clears throat> the Bible says, a very well-known verse, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The atonement of Christ is the only means of salvation then that magnifies the grace of God while perfectly preserving His justice. Because the Bible says, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, notice, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. You say, Wait a minute, 
how did God demonstrate His righteousness on the cross? Wouldn't righteousness be punishing me for my sins? Wouldn't a demonstration of the righteousness of God be condemning me for my sins, giving me justice, giving me what I deserve? He demonstrated His righteousness on the cross by punishing Christ, by pouring out His wrath upon His Son. He set Him forth to be a propitiation, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness Notice this wonderful phrase in verse 26, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Only through the atonement can God save sinners without sacrificing his own justice and his own righteousness. Any other means of redeeming sinners would be at the expense of the justice of God. If uh, Think about it in earthly terms. If, if you blow through a stoplight and you hit a car and injure someone's property and uh, get out and run from the cops and they track you down and arrest you, you've got all these charges, right? And then you stand before the judge and you're guilty and, and you must pay for your crimes. And the judge says, you know, I'm feeling really nice today. I think I'll let you go free. Well, the judge accomplished your salvation, right? I mean, he did. He lets you off the hook. He accomplished your salvation. But he did so at the expense of his justice. You might be able to say, well, that, that was a really benevolent judge, but you cannot say it was a, that was a just judge. You would have to say that's actually a very crooked judge because if he was a just judge, he would have swung his gavel and pronounced you guilty and sentenced you for your crimes. Well, how can God forgive sins and still be a just judge? If God were just to say, well, you know, I know I said that the wages of sin is death. I, I, I know I said that, but I'm just feeling really good today, and I'm just going to accept you. I'm just going to forgive you of your sins. Let's just forget you ever committed them. Come on in. God would be a crooked judge. So the only way that God is just and the justifier, is that God says, no, I will punish you for your sins, but I'm going to punish you in Christ. I'm going to punish you in Christ. This is one of the beautiful things about the gospel. Uh, sometimes we, we like to think that, well, Jesus, Jesus received our punishment, right? And we were kind of off to the side just looking on as God punished Jesus, and we didn't receive any punishment for our sins. But the truth is, is that God did punish us for our sins. But we received that punishment and we received that wrath in the safety of Jesus Christ. Think about the flood. Think about Noah's flood. Did Noah endure the flood? Well, the answer is yes. Noah did endure the flood. But Noah endured the flood in the safety of the ark. And so when God poured out his wrath upon the world, Noah was saved because he was in the ark. Well, the Bible says that you and I are positionally united to Christ. So he bears the sufferings, he bears the reproach, he bears the curse, and we're safe in him. We're safe in him. God's justice requires that he mete out a perfect judgment and punishment for sin. He could not save sinners apart from the atonement without in some way sacrificing his justice. So what he does is he sets forth Jesus as a propitiation not to compromise 
but to demonstrate His righteousness. And through Christ's atonement, God redeems sinners in a way that's consistent with His holy justice as He dispenses His grace. One final text and we'll be done. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. And this verse brings us full circle uh, back to where we began with the ultimate cause of the atonement being what? The love of God for His people. 1 John 4 and verse 10 says this, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We've established that the love of God is the cause of the atonement. And this verse teaches us that the atonement is the supreme demonstration of that love. You say, where do I see the justice of God? On the cross. Where do I see the wrath of God? On the cross. Where do I see the love of God, the grace of God, and the mercy of God? On the cross. There was no greater demonstration of the fullness of God's attributes than the cross of Calvary. Sodom and Gomorrah demonstrated his wrath. The flood, yes, we see grace there in shadow. We definitely see wrath. But where do we see the fullness of God's attributes? With no shadow, with no type, the real unveiled fullness of who he is, the character of God on display. We see it at the cross of Calvary. What makes the cross such a demonstration of love is the costliness of the sacrifice. God spared nothing, not even his own son, in the redemption of his people. But would the cross be the supreme exhibition of love if there were no necessity for such a sacrifice. If there were no necessity for such a cost. See, the atonement demonstrates the love of God because when God ordained to save sinners, He knew that decree would require the death of His own Son, yet He issues the decree anyways. That's what's so beautiful about the gospel. God was not surprised at the cost of redemption. You know, sometimes you and I, we go to a restaurant and we, we don't really look at the, the menu. We just order a bunch of stuff and then the bill comes at the end and we look at the bill and we say, oh, if I had known it was going to cost that much, I wouldn't have ordered all that I did. That's not the way redemption worked. It wasn't that God said, I'm going to save sinners. And then he found out, oh, that's going to cost me the death of my son. Well, now I'm not so sure. No, he issued the decree knowing what it would cost him. His hand was not forced. The atonement was his sovereign choice and it was executed according to his sovereign design and God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, I hope you've seen through this study that the atonement of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, it was not just one of the many choices that God could choose and it was not just the option that God deemed best, but the very nature of God and the nature of redemption 
required that this be the way that he save his people. Let's let's pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Not that you have surveyed the options and chosen the atonement as the best of many possibilities, but Lord, that from before the foundation of the world, you knew that the salvation of sinners would require nothing less than the death of your own son, and yet you chose to save us anyways. And then in the fullness of time, you sent your son into the world, and he went to the cross, and he bore our sins, and he died for us. We love you because you first loved us, and we see that love demonstrated on the cross. Help us as we study these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.